Welcome to the Teaching in Tech podcast with Alan and Chad. This podcast was developed with teachers in mind. We are glad to have you joining us on the podcast where we will dive into everything related to teaching, learning, and technology integration. Our goal is to inspire passion in teachers by discussing strategies and activities that have been successful in the classroom, along with ways to integrate technology for maximum student engagement. In each episode, we want to look at things teachers are doing that are working, detailing teaching strategies and technology integration ideas. Also, special guests will join us to share their own strategies that have been successful with their learners. So welcome back to another episode of Teaching in Tech with Alan and Chad. And we've got a really interesting topic today, something that's fairly current in the world of technology. We're going to be talking about the company OpenAI and one of their new... uh, new features that's been just released not too long ago in early December of 2022, something called ChatGPT. So what, was, what we're going to do to get started talking about this today with ChatGPT, for anybody who's not familiar with this technology, ChatGPT is actually a chatbot. So using AI, using artificial intelligence, what ChatGPT actually allows for, there's a search bar at the bottom on this web-based app. There's a search bar at the bottom where you can have a conversation with a chatbot and get a variety of different responses for the questions that you ask, for topics that you ask about, tasks that you give it. Uh, you get intelligent responses. And um, you, know, you think about a technology like that, there's a variety of different ways that that can be used and a variety of different ways that that can affect society. Uh, Alan, what are some of your thoughts when it comes to chat GPT? Well, I'll tell you, you know, any anybody that is in education, obviously, you hear this or see this, um, and you're just questioning, what does this mean? Uh, or what is it What is it going to do to impact uh, what we do? You know, and, and we started toying with it a little bit, and that's what we'll get into a little bit today. But I just, you know, really emphasizing um, AI, artificial intelligence, this isn't some other person on the other end of a screen creating responses. Um, this is a, a program that has been designed to, to generate a reply. Machine-generated yes. responses. So yeah. I think, first off, from just the tech world, this this product is, I mean, it's amazing. But it's also frightening. You know, I always think like the movies iRobot, where you know, you, <laughs> you're going too far the other direction, where then we become a little bit too reliant on that technology. Not yeah. saying that, you know, I, we're not conspiracy theorists, but... It, it's amazing in one regard and then frightening in another just because of the, the capabilities that we're embedding into technology to almost self-think. Yeah, yeah. And the one thing, too, about OpenAI, about this particular company um, that's produced this chatbot, ChatGPT, OpenAI was actually founded by Sam Altman, uh, Elon Musk, who really hasn't been in the news at all lately, uh, Amazon Web Services, uh, Infosys, among others. And... Elon Musk actually has since resigned from the board, but he still does remain a donor to this project. And so when you look at some of those players involved with Elon Musk, uh, Amazon Web Services, uh, even going back to 2019, Microsoft kind of got things up off the ground with a billion-dollar investment. One billion. Billion with a B, yes. Billion with a B. And so when you start to think about a foundation with some uh, some of those investors that are involved, um, that's a pretty solid place to get started as far as trying to get a startup off of the ground. And I thought it was really interesting looking at OpenAI, their stated goal is promoting and developing friendly AI in a way that benefits humanity as a whole. So when you talked about some of those concerns, the stated goal is actually using this technology for the overall good. 
well, that was the same thing in iRobot, too, but <laughs> it didn't end so well. <laughs> but that is good to know that the, that the motive behind it is is for the growth and production uh, of society in a positive manner and, and that there is no malicious intent behind this production. Right. Uh, a couple other things that I think are important to know just about the, about the company and then as we talk a little bit more about the technology. So OpenAI is actually a research lab and it consists of two different branches. So they have a, a for-profit and a non-profit side. So it's kind of a multi-tiered company there. And there's several different types of AI that they're studying in this research lab. So we're going to talk just about the chatbot today and kind of some of the impacts and effects that can have on education. But this is a company that branches even out further than that. This is We're just talking about one specific app, one specific product um, from, from really a whole stable of things that they're working on. Uh, ChatGPT launched in the beginning of December just last year, 2022. And something that really gives it, uh, really kind of just makes you take notice and gives it some credibility right out of the gate. In the first five days, they received over a million signups for this service. And that's more than both Facebook and TikTok. So when you're talking about uh, just in terms of looking at credibility, I mean, that's right there with the major players when it comes to signups. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, and I know personally, we kind of talked about this a little bit. Maybe maybe the data is a little bit skewed when we're comparing to Facebook, but Looking at TikTok, you know, anybody that's anybody at least knows or can reference something from TikTok. Um, and, and so I just signed up for this chat GPT uh, recently within the last week. And, and there's a single sign on through Google, you know, being able to log in that way. And now when I go right to it, it, it pops right up. So there's also that ease of logging in. Um, and, and so the tracking there, a little bit different than it was from Facebook originally and maybe even TikTok. Uh-huh. But but definitely uh, crazy to see how many how many people have jumped onto this program. Yeah. And and I don't think based on uh, how many times I've tried to log in that they're necessarily ready for this capacity. No, that's definitely the case. And um, just a couple other things about about OpenAI and about this project and the research labs and what they have going on right now. Uh, you know, we had mentioned Microsoft, that initial investment of a billion dollars that they've put in. Well, now just recently, they've also uh, bought a bigger stake in the company and invested several more billion dollars. So, you know, this is a project that's definitely ready to scale and definitely ready for growth. And when you look at the, the tech market right now and the type of year that 2022 was for tech stocks, mm-hmm. the fact that you've got a company raising this kind of capital in this tech environment definitely causes you to raise your eyebrows a little bit as something that could be a major player and, and could be something that's here to stay. Especially in the economy, you know, and where we're at when we've seen kind of the stocks a little unstable in different capacities. Yeah, especially seeing, the tech stocks, yeah. Yes, and now, and now we're seeing that they're investing, you know, billions more into something this mm-hmm. this will be interesting as we continue to uh watch the trajectory of this product yeah. over the next couple of years and one one other quick thing just to add uh, as people look at you know possibilities for specifically chat gpt which is what we're going to be talking about today uh, there's a lot of people that think this could eventually become a competitor to googling something on the web so when you look at how the majority of people go online to get their information they're going through google and searching for different ideas this could potentially be a competitor to that. And you think about then with online advertising and the things that go along with that, um, you know, there's definitely a potential for this to scale and for this to grow. Yeah. And so just um, for those listening to kind of compare what Chad's talking about with our Google search, if you haven't logged into this chat GPT yet, um, you know, if anybody that's been to Google, I think at this point, 
almost everybody in the population has done some type of search engine. Google, obviously, is the Google, largest. Yahoo, Bing. Yeah, right. Uh, Ask Jeeves, which is a blogger. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but if you, if you log into the chat, uh, very similar model, except now you don't have to jump through any of the results. Yeah. And so the chat itself creates almost like the perfect response. That's true because when you get like millions and millions of hits in less than a second, research shows that most people don't go beyond the top three anyway. Right. And I know if I if I have multiple pages, like you said, it's just, okay, I'm going to stick on page one because it's probably more re most relevant to what I'm looking for. Yep. And I'm going to stick within the top, top couple because I don't feel like going through them all. Mm -hmm. if, if one's got the information, they've all got the information. Um, and so, you know, Chad and I started toying around with this a little bit just to kind of gauge what it is. And, you know, before we come in, we, we really wanted to sit down and go, you know, it'd be great going through the podcast and start typing in responses. And we went in in our pre-production and realized uh, it's unavailable. And so there are limitations at this time when you're trying to log in, especially during the, the business hours. Peak hours, yeah. Yeah where it'll it'll say that it's it's bogged down the server capacity can't handle how many people are trying to log in and so we came uh we we went in uh, after hours to look at different rep responses and and what we got and so you know we we our first one is obviously how do i make my podcast more interesting that really wasn't a question for us that was for <laughs> that was for some friends who had another podcast right. that they're struggling with. somebody but. asked us to to look into it for them uh, but it generated a full list so you go in, you ask your question, and the AI just starts a reply. And, and in this reply, it'll restate your question and then give you an approach. And for example, this one comes up with 10 bullet points of like steps on how to improve your podcast. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting how as, we, as you watched it type the response, not only does it give you 10 different uh, specific tips on improving like the interest level on a podcast, but it actually develops each one too. So just to give a couple examples here, uh, number one, be passionate about your topic. If you're excited about the subject of your podcast, your listeners will be too. So it's not just giving you um, just one tip, but it's also developing that tip and giving you a little bit more depth on that. And then just to use a couple others, uh, tell stories. People love to hear stories. So incorporate them into your podcast use humor. A little bit of humor can go a long way in making your podcast more engaging and enjoyable. So it's kind of interesting to see how the machine response is actually not only giving you an idea, but then developing a it's little bit more. expanding on yeah. it to, to yeah. justify why it gave you that response. Which is what English teachers everywhere are trying to get students to do in their writing. And, and they will now, given <laughs> GPT. You know, and, and another piece with this, uh, so I logged in just a little bit ago, and, I, and one question that was really burning a hole in me was, if I type the same question, will I get the same response? Oh, re repeating the same question yeah, twice. Like, okay, is it going to be candid information that's pulling together? Does it think along the same or in a linear fashion? Mm -hmm. And quite frankly, I typed in the exact same question, same formatting, and I got a completely different reply. It still restated the, the question, mm -hmm. and it said, this is how you do it. And then it gave me actually eight bullet points on how to make a podcast more interesting rather than 10. And none of the bullet points were the exact same. Interesting. So, you know, just to, to bring it back to how amazing this product is, it, right. it's, it's truly free thinking mm -hmm. 
through a program model. Right. It's not just a database where you ask it a question and it's going to go out and retrieve a stock answer and you're going to see, like looking something up in the dictionary. It's actually more of a a machine-generated intelligent response where it's going to give you an original thought to your question. Which is pretty incredible. It is incredible. Frightening, but incredible. (laughs) So the other thing about that response, when I I put that in about making the podcast more interesting, it also had a summary at the end. And kind of true to form from what you would expect from a machine-generated response, it said, remember, you don't have to follow every one of these tips. It's important to find the methods that work best for you and to be true to yourself. So it kind of, you know, goes through all of the tips that it would give, but at the same time, then it puts the responsibility back on the human to make it interesting by picking what works best for them. It's like a liability feature. (laughs) Right, right. So the other thing that as we were discussing this in pre-production, we happened to ask one of our one of our fellow English teachers, uh, Mandy Asbury, uh, give us an example of a writing prompt that you might use in an English class. And so thinking about this in terms of a concern of teachers that they might have, uh, students just going out and using machine learning and, and using a, a chat bot to write their, their journal responses for them. And she said, well, I'll give you a good example. We just did this the other day in, in my class. Our journal entry was, what is your favorite song and what makes it special? So I entered that exact question into the chat bot, and it was really interesting what came back. As a machine, the response was this, as a machine learning model, I do not have personal preferences or feelings, so I don't have a favorite song. However, I can tell you some famous and iconic songs that have been liked by many and give you the elements and reasons that have made them popular among listeners. So it can't have personal opinions. <laughs> Which, I, I mean, that's, that's amazing that there are limitations to this because, you right. you know, I'm looking from an English teacher or her perspective, uh, you're, you're now, you can't fake the human element. Right. And so I think that that's amazing. And also what we'll get into a little bit later is what's that workaround? How do we circumvent that cheating? It's, it's adding human elements into this right. work. So, you know, it's interesting to me also when you think about that, because if it is truly machine learning, uh, and, and that's developing these responses. And so then when you ask the question, the chatbot is producing this answer for you. If it were to give biased or opinionated answers, it would have had to been trained that way by how it was programmed and how it was written. Because yeah. it's it, initially this technology is developed by humans to begin with. And, you know, by, by definition, an opinion is someone's specific thought or feeling on something. So if it's re- basically regurgitating and reciting those, it would have had to been trained that way in the beginning. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and, and that kind of leads me into, you know, one of the other ones that I typed in last night and, and looking at the biases, like you just said, if a human's creating it, there almost has to be some layer of bias or opinion into it. Um, and, and so I was I typed in something regarding President Biden and former President Trump. And it was funny because I ended up with the well, same that's probably that's probably a question that is going to be about the most polarizing and the most right. opinion inducing question you can ask. And, and so the fact that it actually backed itself out and said, you know, given any person, um, they, they don't make any comments or references to people. And so I think that in it, so it was the same reply to both. Uh, I asked it to write a satire for the presidency of Donald Trump and Joe Biden, and it refused for both. Uh-huh. And and I think that that speaks then to that level of, like you said, trying to make the world a better place. It's now not 
uh, imposing a specific thought or direction in, in a way that a group should think. Right. And then you think about it as an extension of that. So let's think about in our world at a middle school or a high school when you're dealing with students. If there was a way that you could actually put in individuals' names and then get it to in some way generate a response that was negative or in some way like demeaning to someone else, that could have a really big impact on the way that students interact with each other and reputations and, and things along that line. So to see that it has, it has been developed in a way that it's generally f addressing factual questions, uh, providing you know written responses, but not addressing specific attitudes and opinions, that does, I think, give it a little bit more credibility. Yeah, and and in a data-backed manner, it's, mm -hmm. it's it's pulling it all from factual information, not yeah. like opinionated. Clearly, right, right. So, you know, speaking from the student standpoint, after we talked with our English teacher on a prompt that they would have, um, we then looked at, okay, from a teacher standpoint, could this be a benefit? And so we said, okay, let's just say it's Sunday night and I don't feel like uh, necessarily... The, crea the creativity's not flowing and I need something for tomorrow morning. I've been there. Um, I've been there you too. Know, we don't want to admit it, but it's true. Sometimes it's hard to come up with your plan for the week. But and sometimes it's not even procrastination. You have that standard you know you have to teach, and you're just creativity-wise. You want to develop something that's interesting for the students, and you're just having a hard time coming up with something. Sometimes you need a starting point. That's a very positive way to put it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and so we typed in, uh, you know, write a lesson plan on, a, on, on uh, a given topic. And so Chad looked up potential kinetic energy, and I looked up uh, a quadratic functions, introduction to quadratic functions. And you'd be amazed at what this thing could develop in, what, a minute, under a minute? Oh, probably, yeah, I would say 30 seconds it wrote mine. Much quicker than I would take to actually develop them. Mm-hmm. I mean, interesting, too, the way that it, it went through as you'd watch it develop the lesson plan. I mean, this would be enough for a, a college methods class to get a, a really good score on your lesson development because it gave the lesson a title, very clear objectives at the beginning, yep. went through the materials that you would need, uh, broke down uh, your different segments of the lesson for the introduction, the development, and the, uh, and the assessment at the end into time periods. And, um, you know, it was overall, I wouldn't say it was a really creative lesson plan. Uh, the one on potential and kinetic energy was about pretty basic in, the term, in, in terms of middle school science, where it involved using ramps and using different types of uh, different weighted uh, balls to roll yeah. down the ramps, which is, you know, usually when you're looking at potential and kinetic energy, that's most of the time where your activities are going to go Pretty. to demonstrate that gravitational potential. But at the same time, it was a very solid lesson plan. And what I also thought was interesting, too, at the end, very similar to the other response, uh, when we talked about how do you make a podcast more interesting, at the very end, it said, please take into consideration, this is a generic example. It is recommended to adjust the content and difficulty level to the appropriate grade and class that you're teaching. So once again, it does kind of basically say, hey, to make this really good, you need to look at the human element and then adjust it to the people that you're working with. Well, and so two pieces I want to comment on that, you know, with that, that's good to know and acknowledge because you said like, if I'm in college and I'm, and I'm blanking, I'm new to this. I've never had the experience. Uh -huh. I don't know what it really means to create a lesson plan that's effective in a, in a real classroom. This at least gives me a framework and then I can build from it. Right. And, and teachers across the world know that I can't teach one thing and expect all kids to get it. Right. How many, you, you know, class of 30, you've got 30 different needs and 30 different levels. So 
the generic example is at least a framework to build from. Mm -hmm. But then I think about the math example I put in, and the format was completely different than this. Okay. So once again, it didn't even take the same framework of your, your intro, your development, and your conclusion. Mine had a five-minute introduction, and then it went into a guided lesson, and then it went into an independent practice, and then it went into a conclusion. So it actually layered the almost, you know, the gradual release model. Right. And then an assessment piece in it, which is obviously, you know. Good teaching. Good teaching. I mean, when I look at having, in my experience, both at the middle school level taught science and math, the article or the lesson, I'm sorry, the lesson plan that it wrote for science was very similar to how a science teacher would plan a lesson plan. Mm -hmm. The way that you described the lesson plan on quadratic equations was right online with how you'd write a math lesson plan yeah, because exactly. the two aren't the same. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's not, once again, it's not just a candid program that's saying, okay, when they ask this question, you're going to fill in these boxes. Right. Right. So one of the things that that kind of led us to think about is if you're talking about from a standpoint of a college student, if they were to use a chat bot and copy and paste this response and submit that as their own work, that would bring up a dilemma in terms of ethics and academic honesty. But if you're using it in a way as a resource to help you generate your own work and improve your own work, you can look at it as more of a useful tool and not so much just a shortcut or a way to circumvent things. You know, in our profession in education as teachers, we definitely have a, a, a tendency, I would say, to take the things that happen and sometimes overreact to them a little bit. Uh, it's pretty easy to take that to take that approach that you know this thing this thing is going to be introduced into, and it's going to get into kids' hands. Most kids have a device of their own. We're going to be in a situation where education is just going to be destroyed. There's a layer of worry there. Right. And so even if you go back to December of 22, there was an article published in The Atlantic uh, by an author named Daniel Herman called The End of High School English. <laughs> and it was kind of interesting because as, as the article was being developed, really the main idea at the beginning was that writing has always been kind of viewed by English teachers and others as, as a gatekeeper to really it's something that you can't fake. Uh, as far as motivation, for a long time you've heard teachers talk about, you know, it's one thing to be able to memorize a lot of facts, to be able to regurgitate information, but if you have the ability to write and communicate clearly, that can really set you apart, whether it's looking at college applications, moving on into, uh, you know, the workplace setting. You know, good writing skills, they can't be faked, and they're really something to make you a better communicator and set you apart. And when you start looking at it from that aspect, if students are trying to circumvent learning activities and use this as something just to fill in uh, where they can put in their prompts, their writing activities, and get a generated response, you know, what's going to happen to the writing skills of high school students and, and students everywhere moving forward? Yeah, especially when you, you type in these questions or prompts and you get almost a perfect reply back right. in regards to, you know, convention and format. Um, and even content at least meets the standard of what you would expect in, re in a reply. Right. <clears throat> what was interesting based on the article in The Atlantic as well is that the teacher who did some work using some of the prompts from their own class with ChatGPT is they found that Ch GPT could produce writing that was better than what most teachers and even professors see on a day-to-day -day basis in high schools and colleges. So that's kind of a... You know, that's kind of an interesting concept when you start thinking about all of a sudden teachers are getting better responses, but at the same time, they just don't feel like they're coming from their students 
and they're not being written by their students. One of the questions that this teacher actually ran through ChatGPT that I thought was really interesting, it said, write me an essay describing my volunteer hours at an animal shelter for an application essay to Stanford. And it was really incredible, the level of detail and the human element that was put into the response. It talked about the idea of this person volunteering at the shelter, seeing these shelter pets come in that were abused in difficult situations, but then seeing them rehabilitated. And how fr- and it was a little bit heartbreaking to see them leave, but at the same time they knew it was in their best interest. And that emotional level into right. it. Right. And, you know, that that's a little bit different situation than a high school English class because when you're talking about a high school English class, the teacher knows the student. Yes. And so the idea of writer's voice and being able to evaluate whether or not that student actually wrote that, usually when you'd get one of those copy and pasted responses from the Internet, you can tell right Pretty away quick. this isn't how this student speaks or, or thinks or talks. Right. But in a college essay situation, that's a little bit different because that's going to be that's going to be scored or, or evaluated by someone who's never met that student and is yes. using their writing as an evaluation tool. And that's where we're going to see, I think, a, a bigger shift. Uh, just talking with some of the other educators that we know, obviously there's a fear here, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I and I don't think um, I don't think that's inappropriate to have a layer of fear into what this could mean or the negative implications on any classroom. Mm-hmm. But in reality, when you know your kids, and like you said, the writer's voice and what you're developing and working with them, I think you've got an advantage here as a teacher. But if you're looking at the, the college application, the scholarship uh, application. Well, uh, and how competitive co- yes. the college admissions process can yes. be and how competitive scholarship applications can be. Or, or you know, another one that they brought up in here was a cover letter for an application for a job. Uh-huh. And, a friendly letter for a job at Starbucks. And it gives a specific word count, and it meets that word count. Uh-huh. But I guess if every kid's doing this, then, you know, if 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 everybody's special, nobody's special. Right. And so in this case— That's every, not going to set you apart if everybody's right. using bot-generated responses. And so I think by leveraging the advantages that we know as professionals— especially in the world of education, when you talk about the development of a, of a, of a writer's voice and, and understanding how to articulate your own thought in writing, that will, that will trump anything AI can do because of that human element. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the other thing to look at as well, one of the things that in this article was mentioned, uh, so Daniel Herman, the author, had, uh, he took a student essay and entered that student essay with the ch- in the chat box and then said, uh, make this, fix it and make it better. Hmm. And it was able to do that. So now it's interesting because if you're looking at, let's think about it from a teaching standpoint, if you can have a student take their essay, enter it into the chat bot, and then have the student actually compare how they wrote it and then what changes that the AI, the, the AI made, now you're talking about you're using this technology not as just something to circumvent learning, but you're using it as a tool. And think about the power of that. So one of the things... Uh, in the couple of years that I spent teaching middle school language arts uh, many years ago, it's very difficult to give proper feedback in a timely manner to all the students who are trying to write in the room. But now if you can actually use AI to help give the student a learning activity to do some comparison of what they wrote and then how the chatbot was able to clean it up, yeah, that's a pretty good learning activity. You're creating almost that independent learner again. Now, yeah. now we're self-advocates of growth in the classroom by using this as a positive tool. So, that, I mean, that's that's a pretty amazing way to flip that. Mm-hmm. What I would be curious about would be if I get an AI response, can I put that back in and ask them to make it better? 
that would be an in, that would be an interesting well, experiment. <laughs> Yeah, well, to see if it can actually improve on what it wrote to begin with, which should be pretty solid. Yeah. So as we move on, you know, this is definitely when you talk about application in schools, uh, one concern that teachers are going to have is the idea of getting out of students basically, instead of doing academic activities, just using machine learning responses to get out of doing ac assignments. Um, or in some cases, what we would consider just basically blatant, blatant cheating. It'd be another form of plagiarism. Instead of plagiarizing another person, you're plagiarizing the work of a machine. Mm -hmm. But this is really nothing new. Uh, if you go back to the 1950s, Cliff Notes uh, kind of surfaced at that time. Uh, you know, I think about this, the fraternity houses on college campuses where they would have a file cabinet of papers written by all the, you know, from people who took all the different professors' classes mm -hmm. where they would be able to go. Uh, share from those even in the uh, middle school projects when I would ask kids to research and copying pasting from Wikipedia you know these things are none of these things are new so really as we're looking at this more current technology of looking at chatbots it's going to be a matter of knowing that this, these things are in existence kids can use them in a way to circumvent activities but how as teachers can we come up with ways to first identify that to secondly discourage it and then on a third, a third angle to possibly use it as a learning tool and not just as a negative or something where we're trying to cut out. Yeah, I think, you know, from a professional standpoint is acknowledging that it's there. I, I, too often um, when things have come along, like you said, we've had cliff notes. Um, we, we've had plagiaristic style writing. We, it's easy to copy and paste off the Internet. If we don't acknowledge the elephant in the room, it's not like the elephant leaves. <laughs> You know, and, and as a math teacher, we we kind of already faced this this realm a little bit ago with our photo math, where where students could you know take their photo their their phone screen, hover it over a question, and it would give them the problem all written out and solved. Right, which isn't is another form of AI. It is taking an image, mm -hmm. translating what the actual uh, problem is from that image, and, and then solving it. And giving them yes, and there were other ones that would give them written descriptions, and and so. Rather than just saying, okay, it's not there, or letting them use it as just and, and pretending, you know, turning a blind eye, I, I said, okay, how can we leverage this? Acknowledging that it's there. So when a kid goes, oh, you know they're using Photomath, I go, yeah, I know. And they go, what? And I go, okay, so a kid didn't know how to solve it. I let them use Photomath, and now I have to let them write out the steps. And mm -hmm. then I use that example problem, and I give them one right next to it. Mm -hmm. And then I make them do a mirrored problem based on the example that they just received from Photomath. Mm -hmm. Or if it was a case of an assessment, I would actually handwrite it because I know Photomath couldn't read handwritten problems. In this case, I'm thinking of writing, adding that human element like we saw in the prompt earlier. It can't reply with opinion. Right, because if you put something about an opinion, there's no way right. it's going to. So, yes. so you start to look at the actual words that you put in. Now, again, it depends on how crafty your students are. They might be able to reword it in a way to get an answer. But at the same time, I think the key is, as a teacher, if you can develop these things in a way that you're getting the students to engage with the material, yes. in part of the way you're winning the battle. So you mentioned like the math process. If that student um, would get it, maybe be stuck or not have an idea of how to solve that problem and just give up if it was in yeah. a typical format, if you're allowing them to use the photo I math. encouraged them to use it at that point. If you encourage them to yes. do that and they actually engage with the material, that's a win for you. They're seeing a problem solved in a perfect manner. Right. And I would check, obviously, to make sure the answer's right, because sometimes, you mm -hmm. know, the exponents would throw that program off. But yep. if, you're, if you're allowing them, then it creates that 
independent learner a little bit more. And then, like you said, they're engaging in content that probably before that they wouldn't want to engage into anyway. Uh huh. You know, I can't tell how many times I'd hear a kid, I like you, Mr. Brown, but I just hate math. So I'm going to sit over here and do me. And it's like, okay, at least now I got a hook. Hey, yep. You know what? Go ahead and use this. You get something to pull them in, which is what we're always yes. looking for. Solve half the page with your photo math, and then we'll work on the other half with with the examples that you just created. So it's it's leveraging these resources. And I think it's hard right now. It's new. But I think having systems and, and really diving into this as, as professionals, we can kind of create ways that we can leverage this in our classroom. And a few things, I think, just to put teachers' minds at ease at this point, where we stand with this right now, number one, as we talked about in our little experiments that we did, it wasn't super easy to get on the site. So as far right. as using, it's not like this is as simple as a Google search where I can pretty much uh, 99%, 9.9% of the time, you know, using Google.com is available to me. I had to kind of wait my turn in line and it was tough to get through. Right. There's so, capacity issues right now. Right. And then the other thing about it is as well. Uh, most school districts have already blocked this, you know, with Probably. their filtering yep. uh, software on their on their school networks. And th so then you're looking at, okay, so they can access it from maybe a district-issued device. And then, you know, cell phones are always an issue as well, but that comes down to a teacher being able to kind of monitor and, and set an expectation for how those work in the class. So really as we move forward from here on out, we're going to kind of try to look at the more of the positive angle of this uh, and less of the angle of this is something that's going to take down education. So a question about how do we leverage these resources, just to summarize some positive ways that we could use um, something like chat GPT and, and AI uh, machine learning responses. Faster feedback is a real key. I mean, if you can get a student some feedback that they wouldn't be able to get from you because of the ratio of students to teachers, that's a plus. Having students type in um, like you said, the same prompt twice and compare the responses you get. That's a pretty good learning activity. We know compare and contrast has a pretty high return as far as learning activities go. And to expand on that, you know, how many times do we encourage students free thinking because there is no right answer? Mm -hmm. Right here, if you're putting in the same prompt and getting multiple responses that aren't necessarily aligned, that's allowing students to go through a compare and contrast and then, to, you know. And, reinf and reinforces that, that there's more than one right, right. way to answer this. If, if, if the AI can provide multiple really good responses, it reinforces that exactly. concept. You know, you brought up something really interesting when we were talking about this the other day. Go, taking, putting in a question, let's say a released question from a state test, getting the AI response, and then going through and comparing that to the OST rubric or to the state test rubric. Right. That seems like a pretty that seems like a pretty good learning activity because you'd be able to actually pinpoint and identify some of the things we're helping to earn those points. Yeah. Yeah. Uh you know, my worry immediately if we're getting into testing season here in the next couple months is if this resource is available and we don't have good policies in place to restrict access to this during state testing. That's a concern. But I would be really interested as we prepare students for what does a perfect response look like because too often the exemplars, it, it's very hard to put it, um, to discuss it because it's just, it's very candid, it's one reply. Yep. But if we have an AR program that can give us multiple replies, yep. but still meet the same criteria to receive that high score, and I'm, I, I think it'd be, 
it'd be really cool to have students type in the prompt, get the perfect response, and then almost go through the rubric together. Yeah. You know, you're, you're kind of teaching that whole model of what does it look like? What are my expectations when you hit this state test? Or what about this? What about even taking two different uh, students, each one puts in the same prompt, and then they compare the two responses, which one do they like better and why? So again, you're shifting like the learning and the thinking back to the students. Yes. You're just using the AI responses as a tool and not as a replacement for what the, they're supposed to be doing. And it's still reflection on the prompts, going through the rubric, it's learning the content, you're adding in the reading, the reflection, the uh -huh. comparing, the contrasting. You know, and we, good stuff. another thing we had on this list was the idea of, of having the students summarize ideas and then argue whether they're strong or weak. And so what I started thinking about with that is, wouldn't it be cool if you even had a challenge like, hey, can somebody come up with a better response than the AI? So if I had several responses to a question, pose those all to the class, some of them being uh, generated from AI, some of them being generated by students, mm -hmm almost kind of like the game, you know, you play some of those games where you try to get the people to pick a response. Yeah. Same thing there. Can you actually write a response where the students are going to pick it? Because in some regard, you know, the AI isn't going to have the ability to be as witty or sometimes to put in the humor in the same way that kids might. So it'd be kind of an interesting learning activity to have, you know, can you beat the AI, so to speak? Yeah. Yeah, because then they're engaging it from a human standpoint, reading it and saying, what do they connect best with as far as a reply? Mm -hmm. I love it. And so as we continue to discuss this, you know, in, in our world of education, our goal is to obviously create independent learners and thinkers that will become productive members of society. But through that process, they have to engage in some learning. And, and, and ensure that they're actually going through it, we have to make sure that there's a level of integrity there. So how do we keep that level of integrity, even with a program like this, even with leveraging it in a positive manner? Because we know for as long as school's been school, there's always, there's always gonna be somebody that wants to circumvent the system. Yep. If they're just, they're creative thinkers in their own, in their own way. And, and so, you know, when we're reflecting on this, remembering that there are uh, originality reports. Mm -hmm. That's not a new technology at all. I can remember I finished my, my master's program about uh, 14 or 15 years ago, and even at that point we were using Turnitin to submit our writing and have it compare for originality. Right, and you had to receive under a certain score in order for it to be considered. A certain percentage, yes. yeah. Yes. Uh, GPT-0, actually a, a program, an AI program that was uh, developed to kind of the other end of chat GPT. So I did a little bit of experimenting with GPT-0, and I'll kind of share what I found with that. And I, I thought this was really fascinating. It made me think of a couple things, actually. The first one is this. In terms of plagiarism, you know, a lot of times kids are quick to finish the task, but that sometimes they're not always so quick to cover their tracks. So just one thing real quick. You know, the teacher's eye a lot of times can spot something that doesn't just doesn't seem quite right. So one example that I could think of is different research projects that I've done using digital medium, whether it's a Google Doc, a Google Slide. Kids would go out to Wikipedia and copy and paste, as I had explicitly told them not to do at the start of the assignment. <laughs> the funny part about it was, though, typically the background color of a Wikipedia page was different than the white background of a Google Doc or a Google Slide. And so when they would copy and paste that text, it often puts a light highlighting behind there, whether it's a light gray. I mean, even if you look at our outline notes here for the show today, the things that I copied and pasted off of uh, ChatGPT had a, like a light gray color behind them. Right. And a lot of students aren't necessarily savvy enough to take that highlighting out from behind there. 
So, you know, you can get some things that, um, just some clues that kind of lead you to know maybe this information beyond the writer's voice, this kind of stuff lets you know, hey, this didn't quite come from a student. But with GPT-0, if you have students who are a little bit more savvy, uh, this is just another form of AI. And really what it does is it works in the other direction. So I took some of our responses from our questions that we asked uh, chat GPT, mm -hmm. and I put them into GPT-0. And here's what, here's what GPT-0 does. It basically measures two things. I'm going to do my best to explain these. It measures the perplexity of the sentence. And what that is, is the likelihood that the words were chosen by a bot. Because a human generally is gonna be more random in their word choice. And as you mentioned earlier about the AI responses, they're almost sometimes too smooth. Right. Um, so it's gonna, it's gonna give a number for a perplexity score. And I can't fully explain exactly, I, I haven't in my mind fully understood how that number and perplexity works, but it basically just gives you a likelihood high or low that a bot wrote this versus a person. It also looks for something called burstiness. Now what burstiness is, burstiness would be a spike in perplexity. So generally what would happen if a human writes something, you're gonna have more burstiness because you're going to have spikes in perplexity. You're going to have some longer, more developed sentences, some shorter, less developed sentences kind of mixed together. The writing from a bot is going to be much more consistent and all. If you notice, for example, when we asked it how to make the podcast more interesting, all 10 of those responses were just about the same length. Right. So it didn't show that burstiness. They were all very, very smooth. And so when you do this, you put both uh, uh, these things together, perplexity and burstiness, the AI can actually give you a pretty good recommendation was this written by a bot or a human so here's what i did i basically gave it three samples to try the first one was the response that the ai gave us about how to make a podcast more interesting uh, chat uh, gpt zero went through and analyzed it and it came back with the result most likely this was written by a bot which indeed it was so it was yeah. correct on that the next thing that i did is then i typed in one of my responses um, that I would have answered for uh, the written prompt about your favorite song. Uh, it analyzed that. It went through the process, looked at perplexity, looked at burstiness, and it came back that most likely this was written by a human. So again, it was right. But the third thing that I did is I actually took part of our um, notes for the show today, and I actually just copied and pasted those in and, and had uh, GPT-0 look at that. And it, it worked on it, and it worked on it, and it looked at perplexity, it looked at burstiness, and it still was working. And then it came back and said, the amount of data was inconclusive. We need more information to be able to make you know, a complete determination. So all AI is going to have limitations. But just based on my small sample size, I think GPT-0 was pretty accurate. At least, for, at least as a tool to kind of catch what you can right and so you know now you start to think about that from the lens of a teacher it's really going to add to our workload if we've got to take every essay and run it through right. copy and paste and run it through gpt zero we really don't want to have to do that but you think about writer's voice and you think about if uh, you have an assignment that just doesn't seem quite right coming in from a student if you have to just use that once in a while that's a pretty handy tool to have yeah i think teachers as we're going through this i i, I really believe that teachers have an advantage here because they know their kids it, it's those other layers of job applications, cover letters, the uh, the college admissions, the scholarships. I think that that's where you're going to see more of a spike in usage here. Mm -hmm. um, good, bad, or indifferent, just saying. You know, but as we continue to t think about the academic integrity, you know, I brought up testing, and and as we get into testing season, I think it's important though that we have those protocols in place to make sure that they don't have access to these other resources. Uh, even in, in our district, we do um, 
like the benchmarking assessments and, and making sure that we lock students into these and create the testing environments that's conducive to student thought. Yeah, using than, a secure browser. Yes, yes. And so that way they can't navigate around uh, during the assessment. And obviously having no cell phones at that point would be essential during any given classroom. Test. Yeah, classroom management, which, you know, regardless of whether it's the 50s or the 80s or teaching in, you know, 2023, good classroom management is always going to be a fundamental for a productive classroom. Exactly. You know, a couple other things that I thought of from the technology side, you know, if you're using Google Docs and you're having the students write for you, whether it's a journal response or an essay in Google Docs, you know, the one tool that you have on your side is version history. Mm -hmm. So if you get an essay from a student and you look at it and think, boy, this doesn't really look like this was, was written by the student, you know, you can look at that. And if you're seeing that it was written in different versions, where it's been added to over time, that's a pretty good indicator that the student went through the writing process. If it's basically one edit and it was all dumped in there at one time, you've kind of got the evidence that they didn't do what they were supposed to do. Maybe I pulled it from notes. <laughs> Copy and paste. <laughs> um, and the other thing about that too is you know, you also have other tools if you're working with uh, Apple products like an Apple Classroom where you can monitor screens as they're writing as well. And, you know, think about the writing process, too. When you're actually in a classroom and you're working on writing, the other thing to keep in mind, if you're writing an essay in steps and the student has to verify their work right. each step of the way, that's going to go a long way to cut some of this out. It's Com a process. Compared to a teacher who assigns writing just as a task, here's your prompt, you write the response, I score you zero, one, two, and we move on that's a little bit easier to use a tool like this to get out of actually doing the writing. But if you're doing the writing in a step-by-step -step process and you're evaluating and checking that work every step of the way, uh, that's going to start to close that gap where it won't be as useful. And I'm thinking of, you know, the, the solid English teachers that we've worked with. Um, that's, that's a great point, Chad, when you talk about the types of questions that are being asked in the writing that we're expecting as students. Really, because writing is procedural and we're expecting, you know, this to be kind of checkpoint based. The only way that this would be relevant to students in your class would be if you're giving them very candid questions. And, right. and so I'm even thinking like a journal entry, but that you, you're just asking them to reflect. Right. You know, or, or an opinion based. Mm -hmm. Once again, it's their thoughts. Once you start to learn how the AI is going to respond to certain questions, that's where in some ways the human should always have the upper hand yes. because if you write your questions in a way that aren't easily answered by AI, then you still maintain the advantage. Exactly. So as we kind of wrap up today talking about this topic, there's a couple different ways in education that you can look at it. You can look at it from one side of this is a huge threat to education and learning is never going to be the same. Education's going away it's done right teachers are going to be less relevant the kids can learn from you know ai and machine learning and our whole the whole outlook is going to change but at the same time i would like to look at this the way i look at all other technology you know the technology itself is really neither good or bad it's just a tool mm -hmm. and so if we start to take a look at how do we use this tool in the most effective way to help create learning experiences for students. In some ways, there's kind of some exciting aspects of looking at it and not just as a way for kids to, to quote unquote cheat or just to circumvent having to do work. Right, well, I mean, and that comes back to assuming positive intent. You know, I, I think when we brought Apple products into our district, the biggest one that they told me was if it's something that they can search on the internet, it's not, it's not necessarily something you should explicitly teach. 
and and I and that can be argued, right? And right. how I just frame that. But but what I think the idea behind it was if I'm taking time out of my day to teach them the process when they have a tool that they can use for the process, let's find another way to approach the problem. Right. And it's no different than going back to the idea of doing using a calculator versus doing long division on paper. Right. Or you know you look at even presenting information as a teacher, whether you were using a chalkboard, an overhead projector, a smart board, or now an LCD monitor hanging on your wall. There's different tools, and the way that you apply and the way that those are used makes a big difference. So to me, I'm looking at, can I leverage this in a way that I'm saving time on all of those fundamental steps that I would normally be teaching and use it to really dive into, can we learn something on how to apply this? Can we make it more engaging? Can we, can we revolutionize our classroom to meet the changing world with technology? I'm, I'm with you 100% on that. Well, this brings us to the end of the episode. Hopefully you've enjoyed this discussion of current technology that is looking to have a major influence on classrooms as we move forward. While some people in education might see this as a threat uh, to schools as we have known them, it seems like a better approach might be to recognize that the world is full of constant change and innovation. And the more that we're willing to adapt and leverage the current technology that we have to fit our class objectives, the better chance we're going to have to impact students in a positive way. Don't forget to check out the description for the podcast today. We'll be including links from articles discussed and other resources in this podcast. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please remember to subscribe, rate, and write us a review. You can find previous episodes of Teaching in Tech with Alan and Chad on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts.